It's the show the establishment warned you about. That's right. It's the Dr. Tommy Show. Welcome back. We're broadcasting live from the free state of Florida from Echelon Health Studios. Glad you're joining us today. This is the uh, first podcast done for a while, but I wanted to start it off with a review of Government Mule. Saw Government Mule doing uh, Dark Side of the Mule last weekend at the St. Augustine Amphitheater. And I wanted to give you some sound bites from that. Also talk about some of the past um, stuff that's been going on with the uh, Islamist Hamas and the coverage, I guess you call it, of what of the response here in America, uh, mostly from uh, the leftist academia and elitist and their acceptance of the uh, basically Nazis. And then also talk about universities and how that ties in and then talk about diversity but first of all i want to start off with the government mule part so government mule played their last dark side of the mule set it has only been played prior to this this tour which was called the dark side of the mule tour where they played it repeatedly but prior to that it only played 10 times the first time was in halloween of i think it was 2008 and uh the bass player jordan carlson had just joined the band and I read an interview where Warren Haynes wanted to give him a a uh, break so that he didn't have to learn all of these new songs because he had like 200 songs that he had to learn of Government Mule. So instead of doing all Government Mule stuff, they were going to throw in some uh, Pink Floyd, which Jorgen Carlson apparently knew very well and knew better than the Government Mule guys, which at that time was Matt Apps, uh, Danny Lewis, and Warren Haynes, who constitute the band still. Jorgen Carlson has since left a band just prior to this tour, actually. He was on the last album, Peace Like a River, which has just come out. But he is not on the he's not in the band anymore and he's not on this tour. Kevin Scott is the bass player now. Anyway, so this Dark Side of the Mule set they did was supposed to be like a one off thing. They uh they did a, a Halloween I mean sorry, they did a um regular government mule set and then they came back after a break and did the surprise dark side of the mule which was uh, basically a, a smattering of different uh, uh, pink floyd songs mostly uh, songs from dark side of the moon but also some wish you were here and some earlier stuff like from metal and also um, they had a few off of a i think that was it maybe dark side of the moon uh, maybe oh they had uh, one from animals anyway so this was the last time they're going to do it because uh, Warren said that, look, we never really planned to do this forever. We just did it this one time, and then it was so popular, people kept requesting it. So did it a few other times over the years. And like I said, since 08 till this present tour, it had only been done apparently 10 times. And now on this tour, they did it several times. And our, our time we saw at St. Augustine in St. Augustine at the amphitheater there was the last time. So we were very happy to do- have seen that. And privileged to see that. And the cool thing about uh, Government Mule is every concert, I think every concert or nearly every concert is recorded live from the um, sound sound mixer. And so you can download the um, the actual sound, which is uh, directly, like I said, from the soundboard audio. So I wanted to play a little bit of that for you today and give you a taste of what it was like to see Dark Side of the Mule, last last uh, the last Dark Side of the Mule and this is a Stone Cold Rage, that's what they started off with. So they started off right at 7.30. So 7.30 came, and then before we knew it, there was no opening act, and the room was smelling ripe with pot. And then it started off like this. Saying I'm the scared. 
So that was the opening part, Stone Cold Rage from Revolution Come and Revolution Go. And then this is how they ended the show. There we go. Warren Haynes, the great Warren Haynes and the band Government Mule. And I would say go out and see that, but you can't see it because they're no longer going to do that. Of course, you can still see Government Mule, but you cannot see the dark side of the mule anymore. So, like I said, if you wanted to hear any album or show from Dark Side of the Mule, go to, I think it's mule.net, and you can go to their download website and they do a downloads now on something called nugs nugs.net and uh, it used to be mule tracks but anyway <clears throat> you can get them all and we got that one there's from uh, october 14th so anyway so moving on from government mule to more uh serious matters we have our uh, update so this has a uh, been a hellacious few weeks Actually, a few months, I guess you call it, since, uh, I guess, you know, this acceleration of the persecution of Donald Trump trying to get him off of the campaign trail and then uh, with through through legal matters and then, you know, the the never ending, um, never ending batterment, I guess you call it, from from uh, um, Joe Biden and his crew and continuing continuing to screw up our economy make inflation through the roof uh, and then make us weak and insecure over overseas abroad and making our country and our world just basically more unstable. And it culminated all with this uh, terrorists who in the most uh, barbaric act in recent history invaded Israel and uh, massacred entire villages of people. Uh, including anybody they could find in the most uh, heinous variety, heinous fashion you could even imagine. And you've read about it. If you watch CNN, you probably don't know anything about it. But for those of you who watch CNN, uh, they did invade uh, kibbutzes and kill entire families in the most atrocious ways, burning people alive, cutting their heads off, cutting babies' heads off. Uh, it's just stomach-churning stuff. And And then to make things even worse has been to see the, uh, the, I mean, not to make it worse, I guess to rub salt in the wound or, or to make matters. If you, if you could make things even more distasteful after all that is been the response of the American left and the American elites, especially those who are, who are uh, in the academia and, uh, in the upper echelons of the Democrat party, uh, such as their, uh, uh, their leader AOC and her her band of misfits called the Squad, and just to see the ways that 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 we've gone about just calling these things that were done 
uh, just this is just a response to all the terror that's been committed by Israel over the past uh, over the past fifty years or whatever, and uh, it's just it's just very disheartening to see all that on top of all of it. And you try you try to think what what causes this? Who who thinks this way? And the reason people think this way is because largely universities. And so I want to read this part from Davis, this piece from Victor Davis Hanson. It's on his website, victordavishanson.com. It's called The Sickness of Our Universities and the Cure. It says, The sheer madness that has gripped many elite universities since October 7th and the butchery, rape, and torture, and mutilation of some 1,000 Israeli citizens, civilians by Hamas murderers, have shocked the public at large. Campus craziness is, of course, nothing new. But quite novel for campuses was a sudden jettisoning of pre prior campus pretenses. Universities have brazenly dropped their careful two-faced gymnastics to reveal at last, unapologetically, proudly, and defiantly, the moral decay that now characterizes American higher education. Recent news stories have exposed this rot to the world and will grace and sorry and will have grave repercussions for higher education in the next few years. The Nazis once desecrated the tombstones of dead Jews. Our campuses have updated that hatred. Students now tear down pictures of Jewish captives kidnapped or murdered by Hamas. University presidents do not condemn the hate-filled rallies supporting the killing of Jews in Israel, even though according to their own safety-first ideology and prior proclamations about systemic hatred, these rallies instill a, quote, climate of fear in some students. An instructor at Stanford separated Jewish students from their belongings, ordered them to stand in the corner, boasted about denying the Holocaust, and singled them out for unhinged rantings. Screaming campus activists and professors openly support Hamas, even after its brutal killing of hundreds of Israeli women, children, and infants. That... For more than two weeks, thousands of rockets, barrages initially designed to enhance the surprise mass murdering of October 7th, can daily continue to shower down upon Israeli citizens is of zero concern to loud campus activists. An even bolder Cornell uh, history faculty member bragged that he was quite exhilarated on the news that Jews were butchered on October 7th. A UC Davis professor threatened to go after the children of, quote, Zionist journalists. Savages, excrement, and pigs are the adjectives and nouns one professor at the Art Institute of Chicago posted to describe Israelis. At rallies and protests, hundreds shout about eliminating Israel altogether. Students, faculty, and throngs in general occasionally wear masks or wrap their faces in kefayas as if conceding would find anyone identifying mouthing such advocacy despicable. In some sense, some campus haters have become the equivalent of anti-Semitic sheet-wearing Klansmen. There was plenty of there was plenty of prior evidence predict, to predict this hate-filled, bigoted campus reaction to the mass murder of hundreds of Jews inside Israel. The idea of quote decolonization that today condemns Israel and the West generally has many rancid predecessors. Racially segregated housing reappeared many years ago as quote theme houses. Effectively segregated, no-go areas are euphemistically known as multicultural rooms. Any critics who have objected to such institutionalized racism in Orwellian fashion have been smeared as racist. Events that are off-limits to a particular races on the campus, like separate but equal graduation ceremonies or campus activities, are heralded as, quote, celebrating diversity. Joe McCarthy-era, quote, loyalty oaths have returned to campus under the woke veneer of diversity, equity, and inclusion statements. Refuse to issue such a personal manifesto and one will suffer career consequences. Now, this is actually absolutely true. Uh, uh, our oldest child went to is, is going to the University of Florida and the University of Florida vet school and her application required her to issue a statement on diversity. And I don't know what she wrote, but I doubt she wrote that I'm a Christian white uh uh, a, a Christian white uh, heterosexual female. I doubt she wrote that. Not because she's scared, but because if you did write that, there's very likely you would not be admitted to uh, admitted to uh, the university. Even though being such is is qualifies as diversity. Unpopular or unwelcome questioning of left wing university orthodoxy is labeled as is libeled as hate speech. Dissenting views are often censored, slandered, and suppressed as quote misinformation and disinformation. 
face unproven allegations of inappropriate behavior and one can expect to lose one's fourth, fifth and sixth amendments rights in any star chamber university inquiry. Admission to universities, along with faculty hiring, retention, and tenure, are predicated on racial preferences and de facto quotas. Even before the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, universities already galvanized to implement ways to ignore the anticipated ruling in good Confederate nullification style. So, yeah, so these universities thought that the uh, Supreme Court would have struck down, will, would have. The, the universities thought that the Supreme Court was going to strike down affirmative action, or at least they, they had a good good idea they would. So what they did was they instituted these backdoor affirmative action policies so that you can still discriminate. So you can still discriminate based on race, but you don't call it discrimination based on race through affirmative action. You call it submit your picture. Let's see how diverse you look. But they don't say it that way. They just say submit a picture so we get a better idea who you are. And then I, they probably have some AI uh Technology, you know, from Facebook or Google or whatever that will identify people of a certain race based on their picture. And then then they get their affirmative action that way. Uh, The old notion of disparate impact and proportional representation that set hiring and admission quota on the basis of racial demographics have given away to a sort of repertory admissions in which one in which whites, regardless of grades and test scores, are collectively to be admitted and hired in far smaller numbers than found in the general population. And certain non-white groups, especially East and South Asians, are actively discriminated against. The old Enlightenment notion of not stereotyping entire groups as a faceless collective and instead of seeing persons as diverse and unique individuals has given way to sloppy sloganeering like white privilege, white supremacy, and white rage. Campuses apparently believe that a working class mechanic in Fresno County or a minimum wage tractor driver in Dayton, Ohio, enjoys more power and privilege than Oprah Winfrey or Ibram Kendi. Yeah, Ibram Kendi is the uh, uh, guy who came up with the uh, anti-racism or he's I don't know if he came up with it. I won't want to credit him with that if he didn't. But he's a he's a, uh, a famous figure for the uh, anti-racism. Uh, I guess you call it. What philosophy for the last few decades, the public has been willing to put up with this madness in higher education, even as political correctness squashed free speech on campus and affirmative action and affirmative action descended into woke racial essentialism. Why? One universities assured America that their preeminent math, science and technology and engineering departments along with their professional medical and business schools, remains largely apolitical, research-oriented, and meritocratic. So basically, the universities were saying, look, I know, I know, I know, our women's studies college is a little far left, and let's go ahead and say the teaching colleges, too. They're, they're left-wing, too. But don't worry. The math, the science, technology, engineering, the medical schools, the dental schools, the law schools – we're going to just we're going to play it by the book. We're going to continue to teach people just just, you know, common sense stuff. We're not going to try to indoctrinate anybody with leftism through math and science and technology and engineering, medicine and dentistry. Well, that was a joke. Those departmental commitments to excellence without political fairness has all without political infer- interference had in the past always ensured American dominance and global research and development. Two, the bachelor's degree was once acknowledged as a solid proof of a general education. Graduation from college, once supposedly certified a citizen, entered the workforce with historical literacy as well as as well as enriched by philosophy, literature, and art. Graduates also then purportedly understood our constitutional our constitution and civic life. They were assumed to have basic computational skills as well as being versed in inductive reasoning and analytical reading, writing, and speaking ability. <laughs> yeah, that one's funny. In other words, millions of college graduates were to share common skill sets, and that reality would help to ensure a complex and moral American democracy. Unfortunately, neither of these two arguments for widespread college enrollment is any longer true. It is unnecessary to rehearse the sad decline of the humanities and the associated general civic education today courses today in today's universities. Everyone is by now familiar with the multitude of, quote, grievance studies courses, therapeutic studies courses, and social activist degrees that have largely replaced conventional history and literature programs. Tragically, the rot has also spread to the sciences. 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a systemic campus-led censorship of dissenting scientific views, witch hunts of distinguished healthcare professionals, and de facto suppression of open scientific debate over the safety and efficacy of vaccines and the cost-benefit and the cost-benefit value of the lockdowns. Medical school doctors were demonized if they argued that was scientific support for augmenting COVID-19 treatment with cheap existing off-label pharmaceuticals and even vitamin and supplement regimens. Authors of scientifically based arguments that the the origins of COVID-19 virus was to be found at the Wuhan Virology Lab in China were demonized and their conclusions smeared rather than refuted. In addition, any university-related scientific dialogue over the degree of and remedy for man-made, fossil-fueled-induced climate change must adhere to strict orthodoxies. Any apostates will risk having their careers curtailed and endangered. So let's stop there for a second. So think about that now. Think about that. He he just touched on two things here. The COVID-19 pandemic and then climate change. I've always felt that those two were intrinsically linked in that one was uh, a kind of shorter, abbreviated version of what they're trying to achieve with the uh, the, the, the former is the uh, short, shorter, brief, briefer version of what they were trying to achieve with the latter, which is climate change. So COVID-19 from start to finish was a kind of uh, a way to show what you can do with climate change over the long term. So COVID-19 happened. Uh, they had this emergency. Okay. The emergency was the virus. All right. And then the virus, in order to stop the virus, we had to implement all these things that were draconian, but necessary. And we were told they were necessary because of what? Because of the science, because of Dr. Fauci, because of the NIH, because of the CDC, because of the FDA. And we were told that we couldn't implement these other things that we thought might be reasonable because, again, because of the science. And the science was apolitical. The science did not have any any axes to grind. The science was just there to guide us most truthfully and and get us to to the path quickest the path to uh to uh normalcy quickest and so we were told that we had to wear masks we had to stand on dots we had to stay home from school we had to uh we had to we had to get vaccines that weren't vaccines we had to another thing we had to do was is our duty it was our duty as citizens to do all these things. And if you didn't, and if you didn't, this was the most important thing. You were to be lambasted. You were to be exiled. You were to be uh, looked upon as a scourge on society. And you were the one that's inhibiting us normal people, us people of good of goodwill, us people of sound minds, of people of science from getting back to our normalcy because you and your and your pettiness and your selfishness won't do a simple thing like get an experimental mRNA vaccine. You will not stay home. You will not uh, wear a mask. You try to say that this is not this is not going to help. And you are going against science. You're going against Dr. Fauci. And you and the and the, and the whole might of the government of popular culture of science. Dr. Fauci was put down upon you. And you people who refused to do what was told, you are the reasons they're, ho- they're holding us back from becoming normal. And then what happened? What happened after all that? It played out that everything that the, the, the people who were against the science, so to speak, was true. Everything. So the COVID-19 virus didn't come from eating a bat in Wuhan. How do we know that? Well, the government says so. Hoover's boys say so. Uh, that guy with the nice haircut that has to uh, leave leave uh, congressional hearings early because he has to catch his private jet, which was a bullshit story. Christopher Ray said so. He said, "Look, we look looks like it came from a damn COVID lab, a lab that was what funded in part by Dr. Fauci and his people, just like the people who were the." Uh, uh, conspiracy theorist said, Dr. Fauci funded gain of function. Rand Paul had him in front of Senate many times telling him this. And what did Dr. Fauci say? Oh, he denied it. He gaslighted us. He said this never happened. And everything else that it was, it was said, 
the vaccines are going to be a cure. They're going to get us to COVID zero. Absolute bullshit. The vaccines have nothing but goodness. They, they make you healthy. They make you strong. There was a, there was a study I read once, an article about a man in India who was uh, prosecuted because he had used false identities to get multiple, multiple vaccines. He loved the vaccine so much, the MRNA shots. He got, I think he got a dozen of them and he said it improved everything. It helped his back pain. It helped him feel healthy and vibrant and strong. Maybe even helped his libido. But so anyway, we were told that's what the mRNA vaccines were going to do for us. The so-called vaccines. They even went so far as to change the definition of a vaccine on the CDC website to say that a vaccine is something that induces immune response. Not that it imparts immunity, not that it'll keep you from getting sick from this disease or anything. It says it induces immune response. Or therefore, or that was... That was the basics of it is they said, look, we're going to take the definition of a vaccine and say, look, a vaccine is something that imparts immunity to say, we know it doesn't impart immunity with this COVID shot. So to protect our to protect our investment and to keep this gravy train going, we're going to say a vaccine is actually just something that helps the immune system and it helps it by uh, developing immune response. Well, you can inject someone with any material, including the stuff that comes out of Dr. Fauci's mouth, bullshit, and it will cause an immune response. That's not to say it's a vaccine, but it causes immune response. Anyway, so the vaccines were told they were healthy. They would work. They don't work. What else? Uh, you know, social distancing, all this, the whole thing. You know, the kids are not going to be harmed by, by being out of school for two years. Kids have been irreparably, irreparably harmed, uh, many of them, because they have been, uh, they lost two years. No matter what you do now, you can't go back and make up those two years. Now, you can say, well, they eventually called up. Yeah, but now they're 18-year-olds who should be where they are when they were 16 years old. That's irreparable harm. You know, whether they lost uh, through social functioning or whether they lost it through their academia or whatever the case is. On and on and on and on and on. All the things that they said were true were true. And so you have this thing, like I said, you have this short-term uh, experiment where you have you induce an emergency, COVID-19. You say what the cures are, wearing, glo- uh, wearing uh, gloves, social distancing, getting Dr. Fauci's favorite shot, uh, staying home from school, being fired from your job, all the, social, uh, all the social terrorism that went into causing people to get all that, all the pressure. And then the, bat, then the epilogue of it, what do you have? The final scenario, COVID-19 came from uh, a lab, just like we said. The, the, the things that you say that we had to do to do to make the thing go away didn't work. And then what do we have left? The wreckage. We have the human wreckage. We have all the people who lost their jobs. We have all the families that were uh, separated for that period of time from their loved ones. We have all the children who lost all of their education for those two years, all the social development. We have all of the people who died because they didn't seek out health care. And at an insult to injury, we have all of the detrimental effects from the quote unquote vaccines that are now coming out. How many, how many, times had you ever remembered seeing uh, sudden death of athletes like you do now sudden death of athletes i'll just go on record saying has happened has always happened it has never happened in the amount that is happening now sudden death in athletes used to be a very uncommon occurrence sudden death in athletes now was a common occurrence fairly common let's put it that way so so you have all this wreckage and you have all of this thing. And then you say, well, how is that related to climate change? Well, climate change is the same thing, except we're seeing it in a, in a, in a distorted, in a longer, longer timeline. So we have had the emergency of climate change. And what is climate change? Well, if you go back to the 1970s, they didn't call it climate change. They called it global cooling. And we we're going to die because of global cooling, because there was too many pollutants in the atmosphere and they were going to block out the sun. And then we're all going to have an ice age. We're all going to die. That was in the 1970s. Not 10 years later, global warming came to here, came to four and global warming was the opposite. OK, we're still going to we're still going to have this particles in the in the atmosphere, but they're not going to block out the sun. Actually, they're going to make the sun hotter as hell and they're going to boil to death. We're going to call it global warming. 
And then global warming didn't look like, well, maybe maybe the temperatures aren't changing like we thought. And that started to lose steam. So then we said, well, we'll have a catch-all. We'll call it climate change. And climate change is anything from droughts to storms to normal weather to abnormal weather to cold to heat to whatever. And that's climate change. And then climate change is an emergency. And in order to fight climate change, we've got to induce, induct, or sorry, we have to undergo all of these different uh, changes to our lives. So we have to drive smaller cars. We have to live in smaller houses. We have to fly jets less often, unless you're Leonardo DiCaprio, then you fly them as however the hell often you want. Uh, we have to uh, we have to pay high taxes. We have to pay carbon taxes. We have to have carbon offsets. We have to invest in all this new energy. In the meantime. Trillions of dollars are being spent and uh, profited off of through people who have made the wise assumption that if they get behind regulators who are going to force all these actions on people and then invest on the back end and all those actions that people are going to be forced to do, they're going to make a lot of money, and which is what's happening right now. So we're in the midst of the period now where we have seen the emergency that is analogous to climate change or COVID-19 is climate change. And we are seeing that and we are seeing that the, uh, the uh, therapeutics being implemented now. So right now the MRNA shots of climate change are driving a small car, being forced to pay higher taxes, being forced to pay higher prices in the name of climate change prevention and all this other stuff. So you're going through the pain now. So, you know, the pain of losing your job. The, and also what you're undergoing now is the social ostracization that you would have with COVID-19 is if you've refused to get the COVID-19 shot. Now, so you, you're denying climate change. You're denying science. Again, this is a perfect corollary. You're denying climate change. You're denying science. You deny COVID-19 treatments. You're denying science. You're denying uh, Moderna shots. You're denying science. You're denying uh, uh, forcing you to into buying carbon offsets. You're denying science. You're, you're not uh, driving the kind of cars that we want and investing in the type of industries we want. You're denying science. So here we have this societal pressure economic pressure the elites the same players even the same players even that's what makes it as as easy to understand as anything uh bill gates you know climate change big climate change guy big vaccine guy huh what do you know you know any of them pick any of them the government any government big climate change big COVID 19 it all goes together and who made a hell of a lot of money during COVID 19 you know, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the big corporations that they ran the mom and pop businesses out of business and uh, the big corporations and uh, swallowed them up, swallowed up the market share and got even more powerful. You know, the stock prices of all these uh, big corporations like Amazon and Walmart and everything went up during COVID-19 while the mom and pop companies went out of business. So you're seeing now, like I said, you're seeing the stage two. What we don't see is the aftermath yet. We haven't seen the calamity. We haven't seen the complete failure, which works to the benefit of the people who are pulling off the scam because the scam can last longer that way. So if you have a scam like COVID-19, for instance, and you're running a scam and you got the people scared and you got the people all in hysterics and you got the people buying the things you want to buy and you're investing in the things you want to invest in and you're making the killing on the back end and you're, you're all hot shit. And then next thing you know, well, COVID-19 doesn't pan out. Uh, the virus mutates, even though it was a man-made virus, it still mutates according to the laws of nature to become less virulent and so that it can survive in the population becomes uh, uh, less dangerous and then it stays in the population forever. And that was what was predicted by people who knew what the hell happened with viruses. Not Dr. Fauci, who said, oh, we can get the COVID zero by vaccination. But people who knew said, look, viruses, tech, usually what they'll do is they'll start off with a bang. They'll, they'll be deadly and then they'll mutate to become less deadly because they want to survive. And, it's, and, and uh, evolutionary pressure will force them to mutate into becoming less virulent and then it's more sustainable for their lives. So we, we, we have seen that happen. But climate change is longer because you can't see that. So we're not going to know now. Well, it depends how long we, how long we live. But how, how long is it going to take before we know, oh, you know what? All of that solar power stuff, all those windmills actually didn't make much of a difference at all. We're starting to see that now, though, because you're starting to see people come to the realization that uh, solar power is actually uh, not very helpful for the environment. Solar power uh, doesn't really uh, it doesn't help the environment when you build solar panels that are have a short lifespan 
relatively short lifespan and are non-recyclable. I said, well, you can recycle them. You can't recycle a solar panel. There's no one going to recycle a solar panel. You're going to throw a solar panel in a landfill. The same with these giant ass windmills, these giant ass windmills. And the amount of money, if you look at it from a purely economic standpoint, the amount of money you have to invest in quote unquote alternative energy to get back to where you were with your investment to make money is like a decade. That's if you're looking at solar panels for your house, for instance. Same with cars, I think, although it may be a little bit less for hybrids. But either way, we haven't seen that part of uh, climate change where we get back to the part where we see that the uh, the king has no clothes. Uh, so here we go. In addition, any rever- okay, uh, we talked about that. So if you if you don't uh, agree with man-made fossil fuel-induced climate change, uh, you will have your career curtailed and endangered if you're university. It says also perilous for researchers, doctors, and public health experts on campuses to question the recent dogma that sex is entirely socially constructed rather than biologically determined. So look at the type of uh, stuff that your children are being exposed to. And I say children because these are college kids, you know, college kids that go off to college. If, if they don't have a proper grounding, you know, in, in, in reasoning, which they didn't get in high school, most likely. They'd be very lucky to have gotten into high school. They usually will have to have had it outside of high school. If they went somewhere special, they may have had some reasoning in high school. Usually what you'll have in the same thing as you have in the higher education is a little bit of indoctrination. And it's indoctrination camouflaged as reasoning. So they say, uh, show me the reasons or, or let's talk about climate change and what we can do to be, uh, d- defeat climate change. And uh, then you'll say, well, then you have reasoning skills because you thought of ways to defeat climate change. But no one ever talked about is climate change. Is that something that's caused by man? No, that's that's a given. That's the science. The university trained computer minds that fuel Silicon Valley's high tech industry have weaponized their Internet search result, Internet search results to prioritize links deemed socially and politically preferable. Well, that's a damn sure you can't you can't search online for some things without Unless you know exactly what you're looking for and exactly how to find you, you actually, if there's something you're searching for on the internet, you have to be very savvy. Certain things. Let's say, for instance, if you wanted to find out what is the, uh, what is the counter argument against man-made global warming or man-made climate change? Let's give them that. Let's even call it climate change. I mean, global warming. Let's say, what is the counter argument to global warming? or climate change, man-made climate change. All you're going to find is articles that say people who question that are, are, uh, are crazy or are, are, are kooks are, are just basically, uh, you know, they're not people who you can trust. There is no, you're not going to find anything that says this is the valid argument against you. You're just going to find things that say, this is what crazy people say the argument should be. You'll have to find, you'll have to look at, a, like I said, you'll have to have a website that you know of already or some source that you know of already and then search for that source and then maybe go to that source itself and then look in the website itself. But you can't rely on the search engine to find it. Um, University graduates of the past, or sorry, university graduates are also past masters at internet shadow banning, doxing, blacklisting, and canceling any person, institution, or idea that is felt to be detrimental to or at odds with progressive agenda. Yes. As for business law and medical schools, they now transfer much of their finite resources away from honing professional skills to ideological indoctrination and supposed supposed diversity, equity, inclusion. That's for sure. As a result, universities have lost their century-long credibility as guardians of free and open scientific inquiry. Any contemporary university scientist who followed a renegade devotion to disinterested science as embodied by Democritus, Galileo, Galileo, or Copernicus would encounter the same pre-modern character assassination, groupthink opposition, and efforts to destroy his career. All those people had their careers destroyed. In sum, if exorbitantly high-priced higher education can no longer produce either a class of broadly educated citizens or an empirically trained and elite scientific, professional, and technological class then why would Americans any longer put up with universities' unapologetic indoctrination? 
a sort of interference with the university's mission, so reminiscent of the disastrous Russian commissar system that nearly destroyed the Red Army at the outset of World War II. Reform will only come through the curtailing of government handouts that fuel multi-billion dollar university endowments. Such unprecedented affluence and Affluence ensures lavish campus budgets that in turn subsidize racist, anti-Semitic, and McCarthyite policies and institutions. Just, the t- just tax the income from the roughly $1 trillion of America's tax-exempt university endowments, and perhaps there will not be quite enough money to go for courses on cartoons, cross-dressing, and BLM, much less for thousands of DEI commissars and censors. Stop federal funds to any university that refuses to to ensure Bill of Rights protections for its students. If the SAT and ACT are increasingly dropped for admissions to universities, then set an exit version of them. Should then an exit version of them should be required to ensure that all BA and BS degrees certify at least a minimum competence in math, science, and journal knowledge. Now that's a great idea. So they're dropping SAT and ACT courses and saying, "Oh, these aren't necessary." And the reason they're dropping them is because they can't get in their preferred. Uh, racial groups, they say, well, we're, we're going to drop these because they're, uh, you know, they're racist or they're discriminatory. They, they never really could tell us if this person was a good person for college anyway. They're outdated. So then they say, well, let's didn't, we'll have an exit interview that says they have uh, minimum competence in math, science, and journal knowledge. That would be a death knell for universities. If that was done and if that was recorded and then used as a way to guarantee or not guarantee funding for these universities like i said that would be a death knell that's a great idea from uh victor davis hansen get the government out of the 1.8 trillion dollar student loan business and perhaps campuses would then understand the concept of moral hazard only then would they monitor carefully extraneous expenditures and then begin graduating students in four years with the skills that employers so desperately need and the knowledge that democracy relies upon If thousands of big donors who give billions of dollars to Ivy Leagues and other Tony universities were to just say no, then perhaps grasping deans, provosts, and presidents would begin to wonder whether they could fund any more climbing rock walls, latte bars, DEI czars, drag shows, and hate Israel courses and student organizations. In short, colleges are now a bad deal, far too costly, too political, and too incompetent in fulfilling their mission to the country. They no longer can deliver on what they were created for, and they simply will not stop fueling things that are just unnecessary, not just unnecessary, but downright injurious to the country's scary and destructive. Who wishes to continue with all that exactly? So David, Victor Davis Hanson there has an extremely good idea, and you have to go to these universities and stop them by stopping the, by stopping the funding of them and, and making them become more... Um, they have to they have to justify their existence and show that they are educating people and not just indoctrinating people in uh, left wing ideology and all types of other uh, unnecessary or useless education, quote unquote education. That would be uh, that would be a good thing to do, uh, especially this thing about um, the uh, student loan business. The the only reason that school I'm um, sorry that tuition goes up year after year after year after year after year is because it's subsidized. It's subsidized. And then like Ronald Reagan says, uh, you know, you can subsidize. The only thing, the only way to get less of something is to tax it. And the, and the only way to get more of something is to subsidize it. And you get more education by subsidizing it. And you get more cost of education by subsidizing it. And you see the, see the quality of education we get. <laughs> This is a post. I saw this on Instapundit. This is from a man or woman. I don't know. Named Ari Bach. Spelled A-R-Y-E-H-B-A-C-K. Or B-A-K. And on, this was on LinkedIn. This is a post from Instapundit. Like I said, link. It says, this post is geared primarily to U.S. parents of teenagers who are contemplating university education post high school. As you are considering the next phase in your high school student's life, please do not blindly assume that their best best path forward will necessarily involve college education. And this guy is, or a woman, whoever this person is, a chief executive officer at East Scribers, LLC. It says, number one, 
More and more employers are ignoring college degrees, recognizing that they typically provide little or no value to the recipient and hardly confer a specified level of education, let alone skills. I speak as a CEO and, founders, and founder of a multinational company with around 200 employees, half of whom are, uni- are in the U.S., and which engages with well over 1,000 contractors. Trust me when I tell you that companies care much, much less about this than you and I are led to believe. This is interesting because I just had a conversation with a, a patient who has a business and was formerly a human resources director of a business, I believe. And uh, she said that when she read that an employee had a college education, depending on what the education was and where the education was from, she was less likely to ask them to have an interview because she was afraid of what they would bring to the table, meaning that they may bring in there these ideologies that these universities have indoctrinated these people into and uh, may not be a good fit for the company and may cause a problem. So it's interesting to note here that this uh, gentleman is saying, you know, be, be wary of uh, these college college degrees. It says, number two, the cost of attending college in the U.S. is astronomical. Uh, College and tuition living expenses are an enormous commitment that is typically masked via deferred payments and oversold to unsophisticated 18-year-olds with little grasp of what it means for their future financial profile and whether it's even a net positive all. Well, that's for damn sure if you're going to go to one of these degrees that's going to basically qualify you to get the same job as someone coming out of high school would be, which is often what happens. I mean, how many people who get college degrees end up working at a job that does not require or need a college degree? Uh, Three, opportunity cost. Rather than spending several hundred thousand dollars on a college degree, your son or daughter could be earning similar amounts while honing their skills in the market, giving them a leg up over their peers who who wasted those years in college. Four, In many cases, the professors and university leadership take advantage of their youth, optimism, naivete, to literally poison their minds. We have seen it manifested in campuses across the United States over the past week with respect to Israel. That's particularly close to my heart and mind at the moment, but don't kid yourself and think that it ends there. If you believe in and support Western values and civil liberties, be aware that your children are being indoctrinated against those things that you believe in and that matter to you. So... Yeah, it's absolutely true. He goes, obviously, there are certain professions which a college degree is required, uh, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so you can get a degree uh, in some things that require a degree, like engineering, for instance. You know, it could be argued you could teach yourself engineering. It would be harder, probably. Uh, but there, but there's some there's some degrees that, you know, you probably still need to go to college for. The key would be finding a college that has a degree in your field that is not going to indoctrinate your your child. Real key is then to, to uh, vaccinate your child against it, really. Vaccinate your child against uh, indoctrination by teaching them and not relying on the schools to teach them because they ain't going to happen, but teaching them to think critically, to question the science, so to speak, to question the establishment, you know, it used to be the left liberals, let's call them, used to question establishment. Now liberals are completely in, in lockstep with establishment because they are the establishment now. You know, the hippies of the 60s and 70s, and uh, they are now the ones running these uh, these these firms and running these boardrooms and these universities. They're the deans. And so they, they are the establishment. So now they're the ones that say, don't question the establishment, you know. It used to be rockers were anti-establishment. Now rockers are pro-establishment. I mean, think back to um, COVID-19. How many of these rockers, you know, like Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, they were like, oh, you're a piece of garbage if you don't get a vaccine. Meanwhile, they all get vaccinated and get COVID anyway. You know, I wonder if they even even think about that. But they always say, well, it could have been much worse. This is a corollary to what we were talking about before. This is from Hot Air. It says, how often have you heard the nostrum, diversity is our strength? This is from David Strom. It says, diversity is not our strength. It's a, comfor- it's a comforting idea. After all, America has become more diverse over the years. And most people would like to believe that this makes America a stronger country. Looking back over our history, there is reason to believe that in the long run, our country has benefited from immigrants settling here. 
Chances are you are reading this, you are descended from immigrants, right? And it would be churlish to argue that immigration should have stopped in 1787, 1890, or even 1917. Uh, immigrants have a higher pros- propensity to be entre- entrepreneurs, have a strong incentive to work and ha- work hard to climb the social ladder and economic ladder. People who grow up here are more likely to follow established paths up the social ladder. On the other hand, there is more than one kind of diversity, and not every type enhances our society. Some weaken the social fabric, eroding social trust. And there's plenty of, plenty of evidence that a shift in immigration policies over the last few decades has weakened us. Many immigrants who have moved here in recent years, including many illegal immigrants, have come to the U.S. for the same reasons as in generations past. They and their families are pursuing the American dream, are upwardly mobile, and their children will become indistinguishable, save skin color in many cases, from the children of families who have been here for generations. But it is clear that many people immigrating to the U.S. and Europe these days have no intention of integrating into larger culture or even disdain it. This tendency is reinforced by the prevailing ideology in our public schools and academia that disdains integration. Ironically, these are the people who keep repeating the strength or keep repeating that diversity is our strength. By diversity, they mean non-Western and even anti-Western. The metaphor of a melting pot, a cauldron in which the differences are blended, has been replaced by others such as the salad bowl, in which the ingredients may or may not mesh, but are very different. Multiculturalism is the benign version of this, with the idea being that cultures exist side by side instead of melding. Over the years, the ideal has become replacement, which is necessary due to the inherently colonial white supremacist nature of American society. So, yeah, they used to say, well, you know, that you used to have a melting pot. Everybody they come to every, you come from Italy, you come from Ireland, you come from China, wherever you come in and you're, you get melted pot. And before you know it, in a few generations, everyone likes baseball. Everyone salutes the flag and everyone uh, speaks English and everyone believes in American ideals as established in the Constitution. Well, then they said, well, that's that's not good. We should have a salad bowl. And then everyone remains German, Irish or Chinese. And those cultures just exist side by side. And uh, sure, we all live under the same uh, rules and laws, um, but we don't always have to fill the same way. And we never really have to have an American ideal. And then they then they say, well, you know what? Chinese and uh, Irish and uh, 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 maybe even uh, Pakistani culture is is better than uh, uh, the European culture that we had here before. And so it has to be replaced because European culture is inherently colonial white supremacist. Of course, the melting pot is always something of a, has was always something of a myth, but also a unifying ideal. People may have retained some of their more stubbornly irreducible parts of their home culture, home culture, but they and their neighbors strove to mix well enough and maintain an overarching common culture as an ideal that created a social glue. It says, consider a concrete example. Prior to World War I, Germans were a very distinct subculture in the United States. Schools, newspapers, and churches were clearly German. With the entry of the U.S. into the German, uh, into the war, American Germans were very self-consciously, very self-consciously chose sides with the United States. So much so that Minnesota, ethnically a very German state, is now now seen as Scandinavian more than German, despite Germans being the larger ethnic group. Um, Over 100 years later, we see the opposite trend, most notably of conflicts in the Middle East. Anti-American ideology openly encourages immigrants to the country to resent the dominant culture, no matter how welcoming it has been to the immigrants. As As Americans welcome immigrants, the failure, the favor is not returned. Instead, left-wing ideologues stoke resentment, even join with the ethnic identity groups as fellow travelers in a shared project to undermine Western culture in our country. So this is the current view of what I think the, uh, the, uh, the immigration crowd wants. They want this type of crowd. They want the crowd that says... Uh, they, they believe they want people coming to America that believe anti-American ideology openly encourages immigrants. Uh, they want those types of people. They want people who come here who hate America and they want them to come here because they are fellow travelers in that idea that the uh, Western culture is detrimental to society and they need to overturn 
uh, Western culture. So these people that run Harvard, these people that run the government, run the State Department, they and people like Barack Obama, they see Western culture as a bad thing and they want to import these people and then and then echo their sentiments that America is a bad place and then welcome here, welcome them here. The project, whether it's called DEI, critical race theory, decolonization, or cultural Marxism, dominates the cultural commanding heights in our educational institutions and has made serious headway elsewhere. I have no idea whether immigrants would be more inclined to integrate without DEI ideology, but clearly with it, they feel little pressure to do so. The version of diversity exists, this diversion of diversity exists to weaken our culture, not strengthen it. Its goal is not to renew the vitality of our society, as immigration has usually done for the United States, but to undermine it. DEI ideologists are quite clear about their hostility to the dominant culture. The U.S. has some antibodies to this ideological virus, but Europe has none at all. I fear that DEI ideology is strong enough to is strong enough to overcome Americans' cultural immune system, but at least we have a chance. Immigrants still have op- immigrants still have enormous upward mobility in the U.S., and there is nothing quite like the ability to socially and economically advance to blunt resentment. Now, here's a here's another interesting point here. So he's saying Europe doesn't have any kind of resistance to this uh, this this invasion of their countries by people who hate their countries. Because uh, they don't have it, they I guess they they're just not built that way. Uh, we left Britain because we didn't like the way we were being treated, and we had, had an independent streak when we came to the United States, started the United States. So we have this antibody to it. We have this antibody to it, and we also have this upward mobility that allows people who come as immigrants to America to become successful and to see the American uh, exceptionalism that is true that American uh, offers opportunities that aren't don't exist elsewhere for people to come and make make something out of nothing so to speak and so that blunts resentment because when you're able to come in and say in one or two generations go from being very poor to very very uh, affluent then suddenly you're saying well you know this isn't such a bad place here lies the key to what they're trying to do now and I believe what Barack Obama's third term is trying to do with Biden and in the uh, in his clan is to uh, make this upward mobility less less uh, less possible, less likely to happen. And that's what you see when they're importing enormous amounts of people from the southern border and and sending them throughout the country. They're taking in people who have absolutely no no checks on their background who are probably leaving their country because they have uh very little uh to achieve in their country and they're coming here because this is this is there's nothing there's nothing that they have nothing to lose. And so what they were we're importing people. We're not importing engineers and doctors and attorneys and all that through the southern border illegally because they wouldn't come that way. But we're importing people who are refugees, people with little education, people who are desperate, people who probably have bad intentions for the United States, maybe even terrorists, or likely I'll know that there's terrorists coming through there. It's just how many is the question. But anyway, you do that. And you you make it less likely for those people to move up. Uh, you send them to a, a public school, uh, government school, which is uh, does poorly. You're less likely to see them move up in the uh, economic ladder. Uh, you you and if they do go to the school, uh, you in, embed in them this resentment of the country where they're coming to, and you reinforce their values from home that says this place that you are fleeing from it actually has a better culture. Uh, than the one you're coming to. So you thought that the country you came from sucked because you didn't have any rights. The property, the, the government was corrupt and uh, you came here for a better life. Well, guess what? This place sucks too. And the only way you can get ahead is by throwing in with us and we're the Democrat party. And if you throw in with us, we'll make sure you have, you have free housing, free health care. You don't have to get married, have as many children as you want. The more children you have, the more we'll pay you. And by that way, they cut off this upward mobility and that way you can uh, you can make sure that people who are immigrating here stay in these in these uh, in these uh, these separated parts of society where they never integrate. They never enjoy the American dream. And that is the sick 
uh, twisted goal of the people who want to import large numbers of people who are uneducated and have few skills is to keep them that way. And that way they have this dependent class of people, this constituency, client constituency they can continue to rely upon for voting to keep them in power to say, if you don't vote for us, then you're going to lose all these things that we gave you. Here's our problem. Here our problem is the sheer number of immigrants. The proportion of immigrants to native born is the highest since 1890 when the West was still being settled and people throughout thought the streets were paved with gold. It's pretty clear that immigrants who come here in order to strike it rich are eager to integrate, but just as clear that people arriving as refugees are not. And of course, almost all immigrants prior to 1960s came from Europe, although they were less meltable populations of Asians and of course the black population who were imported to this country unwillingly. Asians have largely melted into the population, and the U.S. has not solved the problem of the American-born black integration, although black immigrants actually do integrate reasonably well into the larger culture. The legacy of slavery remains a barrier to blacks melting into larger culture. I take a disagreement with that. I think that's, I think that's a myth. I think that's something that the left has tried to basically put upon black people as they say look you can integrate because of the because of the uh the the yoke of slavery that your ancestors suffered under i think that's a way to keep people who are uh, i think it's just another uh, way to it's, it's it's another way that you can say that they say well if you're coming here from uh pakistan then you, your culture is better than here that's another way because we're white supremacists here and our culture sucks that's just like they say with the uh, black americans who i mean if you look at the success rate of black americans prior to large governmental intervention uh you know you can look at thomas Sowell and walter williams you know black americans prior to the 1960s were very much integrated as much as anybody can integrate they had successful businesses they had successful communities they were educated in some cases to a higher level than uh, their white counterparts and uh, you know they did not have as many rights as the white people because democrat laws like uh, Jim Crow but nevertheless they were married at high rates higher rates than again so this idea that black people cannot make it in this country because of slavery i don't agree with anyway if the u.s is having trouble integrating third world refugees consider the problems europe faces in europe which has no history of mass immigration there are a few mechanisms to rapidly rapidly integrate millions of third world refugees the UK has had some success integrating immigrants from members of the commonwealth but has been less clear but but as has been less has been made clear, the integration of immigrants from the Middle East has not been successful. Other countries are facing even larger problems. Um, listen to this. Over 25% of Swedes are now either immigrants or 100% descended from immigrants, mostly from the third world. So these other countries are not going to succeed, these European countries, because they're too small. They're getting inundated with immigrants and these immigrants are taking over their culture and that's destroying their countries. Because like I said, a lot of these people are, they're not coming from, these are not, I mean, the Sudan is not sending their best. Let's put it that way. It says, uh, they are far more like, they're talking about the immigrants here. It is back in Sweden. They are far more likely to be on welfare than native Swedes and don't and generally, and don't generally think of themselves as Swedish. The result, a huge increase in crime, bombings, and a sense of entitlement. The immigrants are, ironically, colonizers. They are now parts of Sweden where there are now parts of Sweden where whites dare not go. Europeans do not like don't like this and want it to stop. Americans want it to stop as well. Unfortunately, many of our elites disagree. They believe that quote diversity is our strength and have increasingly turned on their own population as bigots. Look at the open U.S. border and the hatred of the, directed the AFD in Germany and other anti-immigrant parties. Much of the propaganda aimed at Eastern European countries as fascist is tied to their own unwillingness to open their borders. Yes, yeah, so if you don't open your borders and let your country be destroyed and your culture destroyed, you're a fascist. I fear that Europe, the home of the Western culture, is lost. The U.S. may recover, although that may only happen through a thorough reform of our cultural and political institutions. Both Europe and the U.S. have been dominated by a transnational elite that is committing cultural suicide, fundamentally understanding what makes our culture tick. Actually, I don't know if they're misunderstanding it. I think they understand what makes our culture tick. They just hate the culture. 
I think that's the key. I think the elites, for whatever their reasoning, hate the culture. And they want to destroy the culture as it is and rebuild it in their own likeness. They seem to believe that cultural cohesion is a bad thing rather than the foundation upon which the rule of law, societal health, and ultimately social harmony rest. Mm-hmm. Most people in general population have already concluded that their national policies, policies let in too many immigrants too fast. The real question is whether the political elite will listen. It's not even clear that any change of policy today will make it easier to deal with the clear and present danger that already exists. Our colleges and universities are, as it is now very clear, enemies in our midst. They have created an anti-Western hysteria when married to unlimited immigration could destroy our society. Our government institutions are not far behind. Can the West recover? Not with our current leaders. So again, this is a tie-in to this thing about the universities and the sickness universities from Victor Davis Hanson, American Greatness. So Diversity is not our strength in hot air and Victor Davis Hanson, the security sickness of our universities. Those two go together to show us how the left, through its leadership, is destroying our country, destroying it. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Go to drtommy.com for more of the Dr. Tommy Show and uh, subscribe on any of the podcast platforms and then watch it live on Rumble and you can see old shows on YouTube. So thank you for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye.